If you were here in December, we, sp- we spent that month talking about God's story. The story the Bible gives us, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so what we're going to begin doing today is connecting that story to your life. What does that story have to do with your farming, with your nursing, with your firefighting, with your, with your homeschooling, with your retirement, with the way that you raise your children? How does God's story intersect with my life? And so we're going to go from story to mission over the next few weeks. Uh, and so we're going to begin that today. And so this series is called For Christ, For Clanton, because we want to be a church uh, that is for Christ, for His glory. We exist by His grace and for His glory. But also we acknowledge that He has placed us here. Uh, one, uh, one of our elders says regularly, uh, nobody moves to Clanton, they're sent. Now, I'll let him dis- defend how he means that. But uh, whether you were born and raised here or whether you moved here, it's true that if you are in Christ, you are here because God has placed you here. And when I say Clanton, I'm not intentionally leaving out Verbena or Billingsley or Thorsby. Uh, for Christ, for Clanton rolls a little bit better off the tongue than for Christ, for Chilton County. So... <clears throat> I said Clanton, but if you don't live in the city limits, this applies to where you live too. All right, where you live, where you work, uh, that is that is who we seek to be as a church. Uh, and the first uh, the first stop we're going to make as we answer this question of who we are and what what our mission is as a church is Matthew twenty eight. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Matthew twenty eight verses eighteen through twenty. Page 835, if you're using the Bible in the, uh, in the chair there. It would make sense that if the, the focal point of God's kingdom story is the death and resurrection of Jesus, which it is, that's the focal point, that is how God is bringing the kingdom, restoring the kingdom to the world is through the work of His Son, right? So everything is focused on Jesus. It would make sense that if that's the focal point of the story then if we're going to find our mission, it would be in close relation to that. It would have something in connection with Jesus' death and resurrection. And lo and behold, it does. Right after Jesus um, raises, is risen, rises from the dead, right after Jesus leaves the tomb, let's say it that way, um, he meets his disciples, and here at the very end of Matthew's gospel, he gives them what, what is come to be known as the Great Commission, right? He tells them what their mission is, what they are to be about, and consequently what we are to be about because Jesus has died and risen again. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Bible, there are four accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, We call them Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first. If you are investigating uh, Jesus for the first time or for the seventh time, if you want to learn more about Jesus, these are a great place to start. And if you would like help in reading through one of these Gospels, I want you to talk to me. I'll be in the gathering area after the worship service today, and I would love to talk more about that. So if you're, if you're investigating the claims of Christ this morning, uh, let's talk after, uh, after the worship service. All right, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is God's Word. 
I'm going to actually start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Just a couple of quick questions, uh, particularly if you've been around this church or a church uh, most of your life. What exactly is it, not Sunday school answers, but really when you think about your experience with church, uh, what is it that the church is about? What it may be, and maybe you've been in several churches, and so you'd answer that question several different ways. But, uh, but what is it that the churches or the church that you are a part of, uh, what, it, what is it all about? Who are we? What do we do? What's the culture of the church? If somebody were to ask, hey, what are you guys all about at, at Grace Fellowship? How would you answer their question? You can keep that in your head. Don't answer out loud. Right? What I want to do is I want to begin to, to take uh, the beautiful thing about God's Word is that it always, uh, sometimes it encourages us uh, and other times it corrects us, right? Uh, so I want us to, but I want you to go ahead and have those things in your mind, what the culture and it, why the church exists, so that as we go through this, that can be corrected if necessary. And you know what? We're always gonna, we're always gonna drift off point. That is the nature of things. It's life in a fallen world that we're going to become focused sometimes on things that don't really matter. On things that, that are good, but are not best. Things that are helpful, but are not necessary. Right? So we want to clarify in our minds, what, what is it that we stand for? What would cease to happen if our church ceased to exist? And we're going to use uh, this commission as a frame for how we understand that. Uh, just right off the bat, we're going to say this, that the mission of God's church, first and foremost, the mission of God's church, and really of every church that is faithful, however, whatever their mission statement may say, it boils down to this. The mission of God's church is to make and shape followers of Jesus who are learning from Jesus how to live. Right? That's going to, that's kind of captured, that's, that's, that captures the definition of discipleship we're going to use here in just a minute. Um, before we get to that definition of discipleship, because that's probably something you've heard a lot, I want you to notice that these verses that we've read, 18 through 20, are built like an Oreo. You know what an Oreo is? Two chocolate cookies with yummy cream in the middle, right? And I want you to notice that, that these verses are structured just like an Oreo sandwich. That, that there's, that Jesus says something about himself, and then he gives the church a mission, and then he says something else about himself. Right? So, he makes a declaration of his authority, his power, then he gives the church its mission, and then he promises his presence. And so we're gonna, we're gonna unpack each of those. We're just gonna walk through it just like it's laid out here in Matthew 28. So let's talk about the power that leads the mission. This first, uh, the first Oreo, the top Oreo. 
Jesus has asked the disciples to meet him on a mountain in Galilee. He has been crucified. They've seen that. He's risen from the dead. They've, they've already borne witness to that. They've seen that. They've, they've witnessed his resurrection. Uh, and now he is about to ascend to heaven. Uh, that happens in the book of Acts. But before he does, he gives the church uh, some marching orders. But he begins by saying this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Uh, th- these verses are actually structured by a four alls. All authority, all the nations, all that I have commanded, and then literally at the very end, all the days until the end. Those, there are four alls in this verse, right? This whole message is actually shot through with the word all. What does that tell us? That Jesus is king of all. There's a Dutch theologian. He actually was the prime minister of the Netherlands. His name was Abraham Kuyper. And he says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Think about that. There is not one square inch of your existence where Jesus does not say, mine. Jesus is king over all. That means there is no space, there is no physical space over which Jesus is not king. Whether that's Las Vegas or Clanton or Pluto, right? It belongs to Jesus. And that means there are no, as missionaries will often talk about closed countries. Countries that are closed to missionaries coming in and sharing the gospel. Well, there are no closed countries to Jesus. There are no places he cannot go. There are no places that are off limits. Jesus is king over all. But that also means that there's no sphere of your life that is outside of Jesus' control. However you break those spheres up, whether that's home, work, recreation, Jesus is king over all. All authority belongs to Him. So as I said earlier, Jesus' reign affects how you go to college, how you farm, how you raise your kids, how you play frisbee golf, right? Jesus reigns over all. All, no sphere is outside, there's nothing off limits. But the most important part of this, the most important implication, is that there's nothing to fear. Uh, It's remarkable, uh, just a little bit, just a, a verse before Jesus speaks, it says that his 11 disciples worshipped, but some doubted that there was some... You know, they, they, they weren't, they, they still hadn't quite grasped the fact that Jesus, the suffering servant, whom they had seen crucified and buried, was now the reigning king, resurrected and about to ascend, right? The suffering servant has become the reigning king. And because Jesus has suffered and died and risen again, that means all of our enemies 
have been dealt with. Jesus has put death to death. Jesus has dealt with sin. Jesus has defeated his enemy, the devil. Now, that's not finished and, f- and fully final. That waits the last day. But, and yet, Jesus is victorious. When Jesus takes the reins of the universe, that means there is nothing to fear. Not only is there no place or sphere that's off limits, but it means that Jesus is everywhere. He is in control of everything. Jesus uh, Jesus tells the disciples, before this in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus tells His disciples that He will build His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, so that you understand that imagery, in ancient days, the city gates were, were the entry point to the city. And so if an, if an attacking force came against the city, what did you do? You closed the gates, right? And if that enemy force can assault and tear down the gates, what have they gained? The whole city. So victory, victory is in taking the gates. How does Jesus describe the battle between His church and the powers of hell? He says that the powers of hell are losing to His church. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That they cannot stand against the church. How differently do we see ourselves? Jesus says that the kingdom of darkness is on the defensive and that we are on the offensive. And yet, we talk about ourselves in defensive terms. We're all about defending ourselves against the culture or the world or the powers that be. We're afraid and we have our heads stuck in the sand. We lament the way our world is going. The story of Chicken Little is our story. We run around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That is not what Jesus has for His church. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The sky is not falling, friends. The sky will split wide open when Jesus returns. But until that moment, He is King, He is reigning, and He will win. There is nothing to fear. There is no cultural battle to be afraid of. If we hold fast to Jesus, Jesus is King over all. And then notice He says, Therefore... Because I am king, therefore, go make disciples. So that the power that leads the mission, we have the mission itself. Therefore, because I am king, go make disciples. Our assignment comes from His authority. We don't build the kingdom, it's His. We don't bring the kingdom, that's His job. We make disciples. We make disciples. So the mission that Jesus gives... Every Jesus follower and the gathering of Jesus followers called the church is to make and shape more Jesus followers. It's like a pyramid scheme, but better. Right? That's the mission. To make, the the disciples make more disciples. 
So we're not here to necessarily to simply make converts, though conversion is an important part of the process. We don't exist to count decisions, though your decisions matter. We're not here to provide a Christian social life, whatever that may mean, though good friendship is important. We're certainly not here to promote Christian busyness, though how we spend our time is important. None of those things define what we're to be about. We, as a gathering of disciples, must be committed to helping other people become disciples. That's it. And if there's anything we do as a church that doesn't feed that, that doesn't flow out of that, we should cut it and stop doing it. We should be, we should be ruthless as how, with how we spend our time. Because we've only got so much. This should drive everything else. But we need to answer a couple of questions if we're going to be about this business. And the first is, what exactly is a disciple? If you're new to the church, that's a very churchy word, right? That's a very, you know, it's, it's a word that comes out of the Bible, but it's not a word that we really understand a whole lot. A disciple, as that term was used in Jesus' day, is both a learner and a follower. If you were going to be someone's disciple, uh, you, they were your teacher, yes. They taught you, yes, but you also patterned your life after theirs. So that's a mixture of learning and following. You basically said, I am devoted to this person and I will pattern my life after their instruction. That's what it means to be a disciple. Dallas Willard, a philosophy professor from Southern California, uses the word apprentice. I like that word. Apprentice. Rankin Wilburn, PCA pastor, borrows from Willard and he says that a disciple is a follower of Jesus who by grace and by choice is learning from Jesus how to live. I like that. I like that definition. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who by grace and by choice is learning from Jesus how to live. We could say it this way. Someone whose life is devoted to learning Jesus. But what I'm trying to capture is this idea that we're not just about academic learning. We do need to learn. But this is not, but, but don't think in kind of the classroom mindset of learning. That what we're learning is not simply information, but we're learning a way of life. That's what it means to be a disciple. And obviously that means it's a gradual process. That, that no one in the room says, okay, I finally got it. Right? Uh, that it's, in some sense, uh, well, in, in a real sense, it's a mark that you will never hit fully this side of heaven. Right? In fact, until the age closes, uh, there will be room for improvement. Okay? So that's what a disciple is. Someone whose life is devoted to learning Jesus more than just a concert, uh, a convert, more than just a nominal like, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. Um, someone whose life is devoted to learning Jesus. But how are disciples made? How do we do that? Jesus uh, mentions a couple of things here. The main verb in verse 19 is make disciples. And then there are two, uh, there are two words that go with that. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them, so baptizing and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptizing and teaching. What does that mean? Uh, Baptimble? Baptimble. I speak for a living. (laughs) Baptism is a symbol. There we go. See, if you take all of the words and mash them together, you actually get a whole sentence in one word. Baptism is a symbol of washing, right? It's a washing symbol. It's the old being washed away, the new coming to life. It's a symbol of rebirth. And being baptized into someone's name is a sign of their authority over you. And so for Jesus to say that disciples are made at the beginning when someone is baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to say that new life begins under God's rule, under God's authority, that He is the one who lays claim to your life and you release the, the claims of others. Which is So this is a really fitting symbol, baptism is, because typically when we think about learning, I remember, I, so I was a... a an education major at the University of Alabama, uh, and we would throw around terms like blank slate, right? That uh, the teacher is there to fill up the blank slate of the student, or that our students were empty containers that we needed to fill with information, right? That's, that's how we typically think about education, modern education in the West. That is not what the Bible means by learning, okay? Uh, the Bible tells us that our containers are pretty full already, that our slates are not blank, Right? That written on our slates are all kinds of rebellious thoughts, words, and actions. And so, to be a learner of Jesus means that we have to unlearn a previous way of life. If we are going to be baptized into Jesus' name, it means that we are learning from Him how to live, and we are looking at un-Jesus ways of living and saying no. That means we're having to unlearn some things and learn new ones. Renounce an old way of life and embrace a new one. And that flows into then when Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Right? There is no part of your life over which Jesus does not say mine. That all of Jesus' commands are good. That all of Jesus' commands give structure. That we learn, we become disciples as we do what Jesus has called us to do. And those commands are some, Jesus himself summarizes those commands in two ways. Love God and love your neighbor. If you strive at those two marks, you will, you will strive to do everything that Jesus has commanded. Right? Love God and love neighbor. Because we belong to Jesus, we seek to conform every area of life to his lordship. Now, we need to say at this point, and this is crucial, crucially important, that this is not a work that we do on our own. Rather, it is a work that begins in us by God's grace and continues through us by God's grace. Remember that definition of discipleship, that a disciple is somebody who by grace and by choice. Grace is operative here. Grace is crucial here. Um, God is the one who has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son through the death and resurrection of His Son. God is the principal actor here. Discipleship is not some way to like pay God back. 
Okay, that's not, that's not how the Christian life works. The Christian life of discipleship is a response that flows out of God's grace. It is not an effort to pay God back for His grace, or it would not be grace. So as we talk about discipleship, our work of discipleship, I want you to bear in mind two of God's works that are crucial in this. First, there's God's work outside of you through the person of Jesus Christ that forgives your sin and cancels your debt. And second, there is God's work inside of you through the person of the Holy Spirit. He has given you new birth so that you can believe in Jesus, so that you can repent of your sin. Apart from grace, there is no repentance and faith. If God is not working in you, then you will not believe what in what Jesus has done. So God's work of grace is crucial and necessary even in continuing to live uh, the Christian life. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us new desires to learn Jesus. So, with God's grace at work in us and Jesus' authority leading us, we are learners of Jesus who are helping others to do the same. That's the mission. Okay? Now, finally, let's talk about the promise, uh, the presence that supports the mission. Look at verse 20, the end of verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I hate it when preachers do this, but I'm going to do it right now. Uh, If you could read this in Greek, it's interesting how Matthew emphasizes this. He puts... I and you right next to each other. So if you were to read it just straight through, it would say, I with you am. So that places the emphasis on Jesus and his people together. I with you am all the days. That's how the sentence would read. It's interesting, Matthew's gospel begins with these words from about Jesus' birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew begins and ends with God's promise to be with us. Which means this, Jesus does not leave us alone to work on our own. He does not say, my job is done, you get on about yours, and let me know when you finish up. Right? My, uh, my dad was infuriated uh, when... Uh, so, I, I was really keen on Super Mario Brothers 2. I'd just gotten that for my eighth birthday and was playing it downstairs in the basement when dad decided on this Saturday morning it would be a good time to teach me how to mow the grass. Now bear in mind that I really like playing video games. So, <clears throat> he, he gives me the instruction for a few rows in the backyard, right? Tells me how to overlap the lawnmower so you don't miss anything. Just go straight, come back, turn around. Here's how you turn the mower around, all that kind of stuff. And so, and then he leaves. Uh, and so I did a couple more rows. Felt like I'd mastered the art of lawn mowing. And it was time to get back to Mario. So I let go of the mower handle, cut it off. And went back inside. 
He did not come into the house nearly as nicely as he came in the first time. Right? Like the laundry room door bangs open. He's like, what are you doing? Like, you left me. I thought I was done. Right? Jesus does not leave us alone to figure this out on our own. Jesus says, I know that what I am sending you into the world to do is impossible by yourself. And I know that you will face opposition because the world, the flesh, and the devil do not want people to follow me. He knew that these 11 men, all of them, would face, would face death and arrest and torture because they were going in the name of Jesus. And by the way, he expects no less of all of the countless millions who followed those first 11. That this is a message, this is a way of life that meets opposition. It is, it is counter-cultural and costly. And by the way, one way that we know that we're kind of off the disciple-making mark is when our message is not countercultural. If the culture is not challenging us, odds are we are not full, we, we are not preaching the message that Jesus gave us. Because the gospel never lines up with the values of any society, no matter how good. So yes, we can look back to 1950s America and see that the values of culture at large reflected biblical values. That does not mean more people were Christians. It simply means that more people adhered to a biblical morality of life. That does not mean they were in God's kingdom. If, if, look, you can be the nicest person in the world, but to not adhere to Jesus, that will cost you. Right? Well, and we should say to adhere to Jesus will cost you everything as well, but in a good way. So, Jesus says that in the midst of that opposition, in the midst of that challenge, I will be with you all the days until the end of the age. That word for end means completion or fullness. It means that this current age that we're living in has an expiration date. That there will be a time, a fixed time, when it ends and the new age, which has already invaded this one, will fully come to pass. Jesus says, until that moment, when this age dies and the new one finishes invading, is complete, I will be with you. I will be with you until the mission I have given you is finished. So it's not as if in this sense that Jesus has already crossed the finish line and is beckoning to us. Rather, he is running beside us and pushing us on, prodding us forward. That's what Jesus' presence, that's how Jesus' presence supports the mission. And so we already said there's nothing to fear. We could also add to that that there's nothing to lose. That Jesus has said, hey, the finish line is right there. Let's, let's make disciples until we cross it. You won't lose anything. In one sense, you lose everything, but you gain everything as well. You lose everything that doesn't matter, and you gain everything that matters. That's what Jesus' presence supporting us means. So, just a couple of closing, uh, closing thoughts. As soon as I say make disciples, I imagine most of us probably go, uh, isn't that your job? Right? Like, you're the professional. Surely, of course the preacher's gonna say it's my, it's my mission to make disciples, cause, I mean, like, he went to school for that. 
By the way, uh, seminary didn't prepare me to do that. Um, it gave me lots of handy information, but it doesn't make you follow Jesus. So, uh, when I say make disciples, uh, that sounds scary and overwhelming, right? It sounds like, I don't know if that's something I can do. I don't know how to do that. So I want to put a graphic up on the screen that has been very helpful to me in understanding this mission. And some of you have seen this before, okay? Uh, I've used this a lot. Uh, this is actually, uh, speaking of, our new members class that will be starting in a couple of weeks. We use this to talk about the mission of the church. So you see there uh, that... We have been brought from, we've been rescued out of the domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the sun. That language comes from Colossians uh, 1 and 2. And we are transformed into a redeemed people who gather around Jesus, right? So uh, that will that's the vision of Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible. So the way that I want us to think about discipleship is simply this. We're just trying to help people take a step towards Jesus. Whether that's having your neighbor in your home so that you may get to know them, taking a step to the right towards Jesus. That, yes, will at some point include sharing the good news of Jesus with them, right? Seeing them cross over from darkness into light. But again, I, I don't, don't think in terms of the grand scope, like, okay, i got to get all these people saved. Okay, don't, don't think that way, because then that's a non-starter. It's a non-starter for me, right? That's overwhelming and defeating to me. What I find to be more helpful is, who, who can I help take a step to the right? Who can I help take a step towards Jesus? Uh, whether that's inviting a friend that I've been talking with for a while to say, hey, let's read the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, or inviting someone to church, right? But what are the ways... Who, first, think of who are the people uh, that in your life uh, you would want to see come to Jesus. And then saying, and then praying... Zach's going to preach on prayer next week because all that we're talking about in mission in, in the mission of the church must be undergirded with prayer. Uh, but praying and then saying, God, how can I help them take a step to the right? How can I move them one step closer to Jesus? That's it. That's the mission of the church. Now, one final thought, and you can just leave that slide up there. How and where does this happen? What, where are we going to go for the rest of this sermon series? Where are disciples made? There are three activities or marks of the church. And we're going to talk about discipleship in each one of them. They are worship, community, and mission. Those are the three spheres of church life. Worship, community, and mission. Disciples worship. Disciples engage in community, and I, by that I mean the community of, the, of believers, and disciples engage in mission. Personally, if you are in Christ, you worship, you do community, you do mission. But also corporately, we worship, we do community, and we do mission. Those three things are the three areas that we're going to explore over the next several weeks. But I don't want us to lose sight of this, that at the center of it all is the cross of Christ. That a disciple, a new disciple is made when someone repents of their sin and believes on the Lord Jesus. If you've been wrestling with that idea for a time, uh, then I invite you this morning to come to Christ. To come to know Jesus and see your life changed forever. Let's pray. God in heaven.
We thank you for your agenda for us, that we don't have to scramble about in the darkness trying to figure out how exactly, what exactly it is you want us to do. We are. You have made us. You have called us to be yours. You brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. And now we have the opportunity uh, to make disciples along with the millions who have come before us, Lord, to help other people uh, learn to follow Jesus. As we come to uh, your table this morning, we pray that you would take common bread and common juice and set it apart for that mysterious and spiritual purpose that encourages us and strengthens us and nourishes us as we walk the disciples' path. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite our elders to come forward. Communion is for the believer. Uh, This is a meal that Jesus has given to His church. Like baptism, it is a symbol. Uh, It reminds us of our union to Him and our union with each other. And it reminds us that we are united in His death. Right in his in his cross that we uh, feast on his body and on his blood, uh, and so uh, that means that this table, uh, while it doesn't belong to Grace Fellowship, it doesn't belong to the PCA our denomination, it does belong to Christ, and He tells us in His Word that those who are not a part of Him do not need to come to the table. That those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. Uh, do not receive communion uh, because it, it, it is damaging, right? It was, it, uh, Paul says uh, that you will experience God's judgment. Uh, and we don't want that for anyone here. So parents, if you'll let, uh, let the plate pass by your children if they haven't made a profession of faith yet. Um, but also this morning, uh, if, there's a, if there's a sin that has been brought to your mind that, uh, that you have not really struggled with, but that, man, I, you know, if, uh, if there is a besetting sin in your life for which you have not repented, uh, then also this is a good opportunity to take that before the Lord, to deal with Him. Remember, He receives you in His grace. This is, a, this is a table of grace for people who need grace. This is not a table for people who have got their act together. Rather, this is a table for people who need to be fed by Jesus. And so with that in mind, let me uh, read Paul's words of institution. Uh, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, after He had given thanks, He took the bread and He broke it. 